when we get in these institutions and find that they are hostile to us, we tend to assume that it is something we have done because this is the place that's supposed to remake you, that's supposed to change your life. And I will always say to people, we said change your life. We didn't say change it for the better. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now. The Feminist Present comes to you from the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good, and that was really good. Yeah. I mean, look at us. We're like... You did a great job. We're podcasting like we're Gen Z. We're podcasting like we will never see our 40th birthday, which in this current moment in America could happen. Uh, mine is in like two weeks, so that would be... <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, don't rule anything no, out, Adrian. No, oh, definitely not. I mean, it is 2020. 2020 gone to 2020. But uh, I, That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I mean, at this point, we're really talking extinction level event. This is going to sound really deeply ironic if someone finds this in a time capsule in the aftertime. I actually think that extinction level event is a uh, pretty good way of describing how I felt about talking to Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, whose name is sacred to hold in my mouth. She talked to us from a hotel room with remarkable composure for someone who did not have a home at that moment because she was in the process of moving houses. And we chatted with Tressie about some of those adventures in real estate, about the current moment of historic uprisings in 50 states across America, and uh, only child cubby holes, which I found deeply gratifying to discuss with her. I should note that since we recorded with Tressie, the Minneapolis City Council did in fact vote to defund and dismantle the existing Minneapolis Police Department, and then unanimously voted to create a transformative new model of policing in the city. So this conversation is a couple of days old by now, but as we'll discuss in the conversation with Tressie, uh, a couple of days can be a lifetime in this June of 2020. I'm still maintaining my theory that the reason that so much rapid change was possible in the Twin Cities is because literally everybody knows each other and all of their cousins in that place. And uh, I know that because I grew up there. So I'm really excited to get Tressie's insight on all of this. I am too. And I'll say just very few things about our guest, given that a lot of people will be familiar with her work. Many of you may know her from columns that have appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Washington Post, and Descent. You may know her most recent book, Thick and Other Essays, which came out with the New Press in 2019 and won a bunch of prizes. She was formerly an associate professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University, as well as a faculty affiliate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. But she recently transitioned to teaching at UNC Chapel Hill. And as Laura said, we caught up with her in a nondescript hotel room with suspiciously good sound quality. The only thing that's more impressive than listening to Tressie's bio is talking to Tressie herself. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us on The Feminist Present today. And here is Adrian and I talking to Tressie McMillan Cottom. All right. Well, that was actually like a place I wanted to start. So like, I know from Lauren and your Twitter feed that you are in an intense real estate situation right now. So you are in the middle of moving both yourself and your folks. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. How, how's that going? 
it goes. <laughs> it goes. One day That's how that's going. I mean, you know, listen, I'm a very fortunate girl. I mean, if these were normal times, this would be a bang up real estate transaction. My house sold in a day. My parents' house is selling. Everything's fine if these were normal circumstances. It is the combination of not being able to predict anything, not being able to really plan anything, and no one really knowing exactly how each next step will go that makes it uh, ridiculous. But yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, we really <laughs> cannot overstate how grateful we are to you for making time for this at this moment. I, I mean, in many vectors of disruption and things not being what they normally are. So in addition to the geographic dislocation you're experiencing, I guess I wanted to begin by asking you what mm-hmm. efforts, energies, entities, or individuals you are lifting up today. Um, you know, yeah, always just lifting up Black people because, dear God, somebody's got you. And that's, you know, and that's our job. And so in my daily life, I always say go local because it's the thing that makes the most sense. You know, local organizations tend to be the ones that really rise and fall. Their viability and financial stability really rises and falls with like people's emotions. National organizations, the names that everybody thinks of, don't get me wrong, they also always struggle, but they have a different kind of a struggle. So that's just my regular thing. In times like this, I just doubled down on local. So like my first instinct when protests start and when there has been a crisis, it is to reach out to the people that I know locally to go, hey, what do you need? And is there something I can do? So my regular routine sort of relationships are with my local bail fund in Richmond, Virginia, which I started kind of supporting several years ago. So that was my first call reaching out to the Richmond, Virginia bail fund and saying, hey, do you need anything? Then that goes out to local mutual aid community. So, you know, the way it goes now is I'll tap into like the people I know and go, do you have any asks? Does anyone need anything? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh, yeah, because it can change from day to day. Right. So, for example, four days ago, the Richmond Bell Fund needs money because people are out protesting and it's a small it's run by like three people. There's a woman in a minivan who is amazing and awesome. And she goes and picks people up. And sometimes when I contact her, she's like, oh, my minivan is crapped out. You know, I mean, like just really doing the damn thing. Um, So like four days ago, they have no money and they know this thing is going to happen. But then of course, you know, everybody done it. So in 48 hours, actually overrun. They're like, oh, 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 we're good. Now we could use money for medics, right? Or now we need, so like it'll change every couple days. And I feel like sort of my role, the sort of quasi role I've carved out is tell me what you need and I'll see if I can find someone who can get it to you. So they kind of plug me into what the most recent need is, the most urgent need is, and then I'll go out and I'll start asking people, hey, you mind giving to this? Is this something we can provide? Anybody got a truck? That's what I do. I'm plugged into my students a lot who are amazing people and in their day lives are also organizers and all these wonderful people. And so I'll ask them, oh, do you guys want me to come and meet you at the protest? And they're always like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why not? I mean, well, so first of all, I think they are under the impression that I am uncool and unequipped. I hardly believe oh they are goodness. under that impression. But they, well, I, I think they upset. do. I am very upset. Thank you very much. Because I'll go, oh, you guys, and they're like, no, Dr. Collins, we don't like <laughs> 
number one. Number two is they're like, you know, you just better serve doing this thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think they're trying to let me down easy. Oh my goodness. They think I don't know protest songs. They think I can't march. They think I'm not down. All of these things are wrong, but whatever. And I do tell them I'm on standby. I'll be their emergency, you know, person. If they need to make the one phone call, you can make it to me and I'll figure something out. So they have told me that is my role. I still go. They're not the boss of me, you know. (laughs) Uh, But you don't think, sorry, I I definitely don't want to try to speak for your students, but it is your understanding that they're not wanting you to go is because they don't think you're cool and not because they don't think that you've already put in the work and it's maybe their time to show up so you can stay home. Well, listen, if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt that way, I might be. That's the way to think about it. I just think they think, I don't know any of the good songs, which may be true, but I can learn. Yes. Yes. The benefit of the doubt is that they are amazing and are energetic and plugged in. And they're like, it is our turn. Let us have our thing. And they're right. And they're absolutely right. It's just weird to now be that person. I don't know. You wake up one day and you're not, I used to be the person. Right. I mean, that would go out the right. It's very strange to think I'm not that person anymore. Aging is really sudden like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But at the same time, it does get at this kind of strange thing, right? Like on the one hand, we have our routines, right? We have a way of responding to these outrages whenever they happen. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, every time you you're like, oh, this is what it's like. You start realizing oh shit, I shouldn't have to do this again, right? right? Yeah. And so there's something interesting here about routine and difference. And like, mm-hmm. there, I guess there's something nice when a young generation can charge in and kind of do do something new. Yeah, and they are right in that the landscape has changed and it is entirely possible that I wouldn't get all of the elements. So I look at them and I have to remember all the time that organizing is a skill. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is people power. You need bodies to show up, but you also need people who know what the hell they're doing. You need to now understand things that frankly were not true for me when I was younger and did it. You need to understand surveillance. You've got to understand the right way to communicate things, what should be public, what shouldn't, what platform to do, what on, when to go dark. Like that kind of thing is not intuitive. And it is and it is true that they have skill sets that would not necessarily be true for everybody just because you're used to being out in the street. Right, right. Like location services on your phone. Like I did not know that was a thing I could say. Exactly. <laughs> that we're supposed to turn our things off. Or how about turn off your biometric security pass because one they need a warrant for and the other they don't. Like Right, right. Who knew who knows this? So that's something interesting. You tweeted a few days ago that this feels different to you. I wanted to sort of ask a little bit more about that yeah because i think it's right but at the same time mm-hmm. i am always worried that i catch myself thinking that every time yeah. what feels different this time i know to be fair i share the same thing so reticent to double down and say oh this time is different i recently wrote a piece uh i think for political i had to respond to that very prompt and i must have had five sentences of hedging before i would say anything because i have that fear of going let's not overstate the moment right. because we're so sensitive to needing like an immediate win to stay out there and to keep the pressure on. Right. But there is something. And I mean, we can't overlook the fact that all of the things that usually discipline us are not there because of COVID. Yeah. Right. You don't have to go to work Monday. 
(laughs) Or if you did, and if you did have to go to work Monday, you are the most likely to want to be protesting because that meant you were probably in a pretty shitty frontline job, frankly, because all middle-class people have been home for nine weeks at this point. And so you don't have that disciplining effect. You don't have the disciplining effect of schools. Don't have to drop the kids off. Don't have to worry about embarrassing the teacher. Don't have to worry about, right? Don't have to worry about getting put on probation if you get caught protesting. In a town like where I've lived for the last few years, Richmond, Virginia is a college town. That's a big deal. Right, right. They don't have to worry about getting expelled, right, or missing an exam or something. Those things are all gone. And then, like, structurally, I think there's something to the fact that we had a moment because of the pandemic didn't just shut down people. It shut down institutions. The police couldn't organize in response as quickly. The government was just as pared down as everybody else was. And that just seems like really historically specific. And then everybody for a really long time has been in their like own media silos. But COVID had us all tuning in. Right. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah. Right. It's been really easy during like I remember during Ferguson, I would be watching these things happen, you know, on social media or the media I consume. And I would walk out my front door and it was like nothing was going on. Right. Because if you were just tuned into your own media stream and that wasn't your world, it wasn't happening. Because of COVID, everybody, I think, has had more attention to sort of focus on media streams that cross over right now. And then, you know, I can't get over the fact that when I'm looking at these images or I'm driving around, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of white people out there, man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of white people. And that just stuns the state for a moment when they can't quite figure out how they're supposed to treat you. Like that moment of indecision is just really good for organizing. Mm -hmm. So all of that feels really different. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. I mean, I think that it's also maybe the fact that so I went to the big protest in San Francisco yesterday, yeah. and I share your observation that it was not the usual crowd. It's right. not the people you'd expect. Yep. It is them too, but there are people there we thought be in school mm-hmm. normally. The other thing is, how many things have we had happen in 2020 that we never thought were going to happen, yep. right? Like, if you told me that, oh, you're going to spend a month in lockdown while every restaurant around you goes bankrupt, while the president tweets about weird conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you told me that last year, I would have probably believed you. But if you told me in 2015, mm-hmm. I would not, mm-hmm. right? And so I felt there was kind of a feeling like, well, if everything apparently can happen, yeah. why not this? Yep. You know, exactly. There does seem to be an opening here that like whether or not this is an illusion yeah. is one thing. But like it does feel like all this other awful stuff has mm-hmm. happened. Why Why not a good thing? Why for, not this? Yeah. That's right. Like if all bets are off on in every other form of like the social contract, you figure, hey, you might as well. Yeah. Absolutely. You commented on the presence of white people, and I was reminded of how hard my group texts have been jumping off this week. I'm so I'm from the Twin Cities originally. Mm. I'm from the Minneapolis suburbs. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one of my best friends is a uh, elementary school teacher at a majority black school in North Minneapolis. Another one of my best friends, shout out to Jess, spent her whole day yesterday convincing as many suburban moms as she could find to max out their inhaler prescriptions Mm -hmm. to bring to the drop off sites. And so they're both out there, you know, doing the work, which is amazing. But like the sort of anecdotes that are coming up are like people being like, my mom just asked me if she's Antifa now. (laughs) Like, you know, I've got messages. So a good friend of mine sent me one yesterday. It's like her 70 year old Texas mother called her and said, can I have one of the black books from your show? (laughs) 
<laughs> and she's like, Mom, anything in Fiction, particular? Mom. You know, like, you're like, no, that was yesterday. Today, her message, her follow-up message to me was, oh, hey, Mom called this morning. She's joined the NAACP. <laughs> wow. I mean, record time. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's hard to come off the last 400 years of America and maintain a spirit of like resilient optimism that the urgency yeah. and the push will always feel as great as it does now. But I did not foresee mm-hmm. group texts talking about like 50 year old white moms in Minnesota being Antifa, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same, same. Asking questions. Somebody else said their parents asked them, like, what is Antifa? When they explained it, they went, oh, yeah, no, we're definitely that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that no, that sounds yeah. horrible. Yeah, like, yeah. that's it. Yeah, we're definitely on that side. Yeah. <laughs> this could be lighthearted, but I also think it's something really profound and serious. So, mm-hmm. in your Twitter responses where you were talking about the ways in which this feels different, another thing that you connected this to is sexlessness, right? Like, yeah. people are yeah. horny and deprived. Yeah. And beyond just sex, like there's real science behind touch deprivation, right? Like that's, that's contributing. Right. How do that's you think right. that is contributing to this from your sociological perspective? I want to be really clear that I'm absolutely making a link that I can't say everyone is done, but there is. We do have an established link between what we call sex ratios, which is a proxy that we would use for how much heterosexual sex, obviously. This is all very heteronormative, by the way. So we often look at China. It's the typical site for this where there mm-hmm. are these significant disparities between available men and available women due to the one-child policy in China. And the hypothesis had been for a long time that when the sex ratios are off, meaning there aren't enough available partners, a society tends to be more aggressive, right? Sexual intimacy and touch is its own type of sort of pacifying force for no other reason. Reproducing and having children tends to have a sort of anchoring effect on a society. That's why states justify investing in those types of policies. So there are links between antisocial behavior and the availability of intimacy and sexual partners. And now I'm the one who made the jump. That's the part I wanted to be clear on. All that stuff I just said is absolutely proven in social science. My jump to that is, and we have now been in this period, a period of which Americans are not nearly as accustomed to adjusting to. We are an on-demand culture, consumption culture, even when it comes to sexual intimacy right? We use an app, you hook up with somebody, right? It is a very on-demand sort of culture. So while it may not seem like a long time, in an American time span, two months is actually significant. And not just the cutoff of, like you said, uh, sexual partners, but I do think it's important to broaden that to just intimate touch. Mm -hmm. None. Where doing the civically responsible thing for the last couple of months has meant not touching the people you care the most about, And I was reading a psychologist recently who said we are wired to want to be physically close to those with whom we are psychologically close. The disruption of having to constantly fight our psychological impulse to be close to someone whom we care about and are psychologically invested in would wear thin very quickly. And they said we were, you know, real quickly approaching that point. And I've got to believe that something about Listen, protesting is a spiritual sort of sexual experience. 
You know, it feels physical and visceral to be out there in a group of people. It does. Yeah. Riding that wave. I mean, you know, listen, that's a thing. And if we have been starved for months without any sort of psychological and physical connection, and now it's, hey, at least we can go out in the streets and feel like we are a part of something, brush up against other people. I actually think that's a huge part of how seductive that would be right now for people who wouldn't normally be protesting. It fascinates me because it kind of complicates something that you talk about in an essay in Thick, namely Knowing Your Whites, which for our listeners, if you haven't read the book, is about mm -hmm. sort of a kind of predictability yeah. of the relationship. Is that a fair way of putting it? Of so. behaviors of white Americans around issues of race. Mm -hmm. The essay is about how ultimately the faith that someone like Barack Obama placed in white America is ultimately mm -hmm. problematic and that really the faith ought to be placed in black America. I guess I was wondering here, is this now a moment where Obama might might have been onto something, that, ah. that there's a chance to sort of be, <laughs> that, that the knowing of whites is is sort of disrupted for a moment, that like every the bets are off so far mm -hmm. that... Does a long honed yeah. sense no longer works as well? Or do you think it's just, yeah. oh, come on, it'll just be a week and we'll be right back? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say there's too much history for me to be willing to give it up that quickly. I think that just the severity of how extreme conditions had to be for white Americans to break from part of their social contract with whiteness. Right. I mean, we, we all had to submit ourselves to the possibility of dying from a virus, I mean, my God, right. I mean, <laughs> that, right. that, if anything that says to me just how strong the hold is of white racial identity to hold in together, yeah. you know, whiteness in this country. So it is not that it cannot be disrupted, but I do think there's something really instructive to saying, look at what it took. Right. That's a very good point. I mean, my, uh, you know, the, the, this is not something that could have been manufactured under normal political conditions. Voting could never have approximated this. Almost no social action that I could think of could have approximated this. To think that it has to be an existential threat of this magnitude is actually pretty historically resonant. Previously, it's been things like world war, right. the threat of communism. Right. That's the kind of existential threat it has taken in the past. And I think a biological threat like COVID is kind of on that level. Um, so if anything, I think it points out something like why Barack Obama's appeal was so facile, that it, it could never have been mere right. hope alone or aspiration alone. Look right. at what it takes. It, it promised all the revolution without any of the work, exactly. without any of the terror, which is our the sheer favorite terror. Con. Right. That's right, which is our favorite con, by the yeah. way. Everybody loves that revolution. And I will say, you know, it's human. Like, I want the revolution, too, where I still get to go to Target. Right. Right. But as it turns out, <laughs> you actually can't do both. Yeah. But convincing people of buying into what is, you know, as romantic as revolution sounds, it's actually extremely difficult. Right. It takes so much sacrificing of our ego and our ourselves and the things we place our faith in, that, yeah, it has to be something of this sort of magnitude, I think, to create interest convergence is uh, how Derek Bale, the scholar, would have said it, for white America to align their interest with Black Americans. Tressie, again, engaging your expertise as a sociologist with such an acute sense of historicity, like, what do you make of this sort of 
beginnings of systemic changes that we're seeing. I'm thinking again of Minneapolis and how the University mm-hmm. of Minnesota just severed ties with the police department, followed know, by right? the Minneapolis public so schools, followed by the Minneapolis Parks and Recreation yeah. Board, now being considered by the Minneapolis City Council. Yeah. How, how? What do you make of that? I've got to say, it's, it's not often that I am pleasantly surprised uh, by, by like positive civic action. And I got to admit, I was a bit, oh, I thought, <laughs> and immediately said, well, if the chips are falling, everybody, let's get on board. This is clearly the direction that we need to go in. And so there's some wonderful organizations. My friend H.F. Davis just released um, with an organization that he is a part of, a national call for all institutions of higher education to divest from their local and state police departments. Hopefully this is the beginning of that kind of movement. I will tell you what I think. I think that all of us owes every young person who went out into the streets uh, seven years ago with Black Lives Matter a significant debt. How they normalized and naturalized the language of abolish the police in such a short period of time is absolutely stunning to me. The fact that it moved from the margins to the center that rapidly The thing about social change is that if you wait for this kind of moment to happen and then put together your platform, you miss it, right? The fact that they were standing there waiting with the work having been done, that they had articulated it, that they understood why they were asking for it and what it would mean and what it should look like, that they had done all that visioning work so that when a moment arrived, when COVID shows up, I mean, who could have predicted this? Right. That they were standing there ready with, oh, here's what you can do, abolish the police. And all of a sudden, it sounds at least as rational as lock yourself in your home for 24 months while we try to find a vaccine. (laughs) You know? Uh, So the first thing is I think debt I think we owe those young people when people said they were being ridiculous and crazy. And look what they did. Changed our entire language around what was possible. And so that's what I think has happened. And especially after Ferguson, there was a really national on the ground campaign by a lot of those young people to push at local elections. They understood that national elections was probably a foregone conclusion. And so I think something happens like that in Minneapolis Mm -hmm. because they've been running people in these really small, and it just takes a couple of people in a room where you, you know, when you have a small municipality, you can actually do something that radical. And so that's what I think we're seeing come to fruition. Yeah. That's beautifully put. Yeah. One thing that I found very interesting in watching the footage of the various marches was that you did, for instance, see it wasn't just young politicized people with the abolish the police signs. It's clearly something that has made it into all age groups and, mm-hmm. you know, all races. And, yeah. but at the same time, so on the one hand, I was extremely heartened by that. I thought that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's sort of what kept sort of knocking around my brain was that I forget which democratic politician it was who called the idea of abolishing ice, you know, fringy. And I'm like, oh, shoot, you're headed for a reckoning there, buddy. Mm-hmm. If you think that that's the radical yeah. position, yep. wait till you hear about the LAPD. There's going to be a really interesting disconnect coming yep. in there. Listen, so AOC and, and I think a cohort was the bellwether. I think it is a beginning and not an end. Right. We saw how poorly Congress adapted uh, mm-hmm. to her and and frankly, how much she struggled yeah. 
to adapt with being in the system. It is difficult. One of the things we know from the civil rights movement is that when you try to move from protest to legislative politics, it gets very complicated very fast. I'm not willing, however, yet to bet against this generation of new young politicians maybe being able to carve out a new middle ground on that. Mm -hmm. You're never going to get everything that you want done legislatively, but it is also true that it is an important pulpit and you need someone there at least speaking the language of sort of social change. And that's what I think that they are doing. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting moment to see if that can tip. I mean, listen, you know, Congress was stunned that AOC uses Instagram. Right. They wanted to sanction her for doing Instagram lives. I mean, (laughs) I'm not sure people understand how ancient our legislative body is. The minute you step in the White House, you know, sort of corridors, your phone reception is crap. And Mm -hmm. when you go into certain legislative sessions, they confiscate your phone and put it in a basket outside the door. And I remember asking somebody, what if somebody steals your phone? And they were like, they actually, (laughs) they were like, they never considered it. They're like, what? I was like, yeah, that's a, you know, that's its own security risk. You're afraid of the security risk of us recording you. Right. The security risk is having all of these senators' phones in a basket outside the door. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was horrified the first time I went to one of these congressional hearings. But it did speak to, I think, yeah, just how out of touch and out of sync Congress is on these issues. And this, so this new, yeah, we're in for a culture clash. I feel like that's a really good tip for anonymous that someone should come in and and intercept that Senator's phone sitting in whatever bucket. I take, I take no credit (laughs) for it whatsoever, except to say, I did think it. I sat there and I thought who leaves a whole bunch of Senator's phone. Honestly. It was so bizarre. Although, frankly, I think it would be depressingly predictable what would be on them. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, Ted Cruz is probably all, you know, uh, ser- serial killer exactly notes. exactly what you think like, Ted Cruz yeah, does. And pornography, yeah. probably. Yeah. And, like, not even good pornography. It's, like, really boring. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, really bad. <laughs> They're sending really bad memes, like, you know, whoever the old person is in your family who sends you the chain letters, yeah. you know. The chain letters, yep. yeah. Yeah, you got to know you got a lot of those, a lot of email forwards. <laughs> it's probably sadder than it is. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Whichever, whichever spy gets a hold of it, we'll just be like, I can't, I can't look like, at this. this Ted Cruz useless. bums <laughs> me out, man. It's too boring. <laughs> yeah. Right, this is too bad. Oh, it's too much. Tressie, what's next? You have some transitions coming up. I do. And, you know, transitions are not my favorite thing. Yeah. Mm. I actually struggle a lot with being unmoored. Mm -hmm. I do my best work when I have got my little cubby hole. So being without a cubby hole is actually really pushing me right now, um, <laughs> which is why we keep, I mean, really, I, I'm keeping myself to like two activities a day. If I do more than two, I really quickly outstrip my, yeah. my capacity. Do I remember correctly that you're an only child? That is correct. I want, so I am two and I yeah. am a deep cubby hole homebody, oh, yeah. like borderline agoraphobic. Like mm-hmm. I'm a very extroverted agoraphobe basically. Yep. Do you, do you think that's an only child thing? Absolutely. Right? Almost every only okay. child I've ever known. So here's my theory. Again, Go, I always please. have to be clear about these things when I'm speaking from expertise and when I'm just, you know, spitballing. My thing is we learned how to build our own worlds really early. Um, you don't have playmates. You don't write. You can't go hang out with the adults. Duh. So I've got a whole world 
in here, right? <laughs> and so when you move me out of my cubby hole, my world that I've built goes with it. Right. And so I'm confused. I'm so discombobulated. I lock keys in the car. I mean, I'm just so out of my zone. So I absolutely think it's the only child thing. We yeah. learn how to entertain ourselves. We develop our own worlds. Well, and the in-betweenness of belonging to children and belonging to adults as an only That's child right. like the only child yeah. is a little bit stateless when it comes to belonging yep. to either of those categories because oh you, i think that's a great that's a great way to you know what i mean because yeah. you don't really have a, yeah. i was one of those like stereotypical bookish kids who just talked like a grown-up so mm-hmm. like even if i was Same. with other kids i couldn't communicate with them. <laughs> i was not part of no. their world that's exactly right they've been telling me i talk funny my whole life because that's right i didn't know how to speak like a no. child saddest story you're ever going to hear. I go to high school and I skipped a grade. So I was always a little off age wise with my peers. And I went to a cool high school. Mm-hmm. Okay, West Charlotte High School, by the way, shout out to everybody in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And we were cool. We had a history of being cool. We had the best dancers and the best football team. And here I was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, <laughs> I got there and realized I didn't know how to kind of shit talk like with the kids Mm -hmm. like I was like that meme hello fellow kids you know (laughs) relatable so here's what I did I went to the library and I checked out a ton of comedy albums stop oh wow (laughs) and I taught myself (laughs) how to you know talk the talk Saddest story you've ever heard in your life, and I know it. I own it, and it's okay. I'm trying not to react here. I'm just uh, definitely dying on the inside. I got to be honest. No. I was so pathetic. I, I am giving praise to your self regard for telling that story uh, and owning you. it. And, you growth. know, I'm with it you. It is growth. It is growth, <laughs> it my is friend. Growth. <laughs> I, t- I talked like a grown up my whole life, I didn't know how to do it. Follow-up question. What is the most memorable word that you mispronounced because you had only read it in a book and never heard a human voice speak it out loud? That is a great one because there are so many. Hold on. I want to say it might be ubiquitous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? Um, Anything where be phonetically correct because, you know, you've been taught to sound things out phonetically. I come from that generation. I'm not sure they even do that anymore. So I'm like maybe epiphany might be another. Um, oh, man. Uh, Opsification. Mm. Yeah. I actually remember having to go somewhere and go, let me find out finally how you really say uh-huh. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so many. There's so many. Mine is super revealing because the one that I remember is Episcopal. <laughs> I had no oh, idea. Totally fair. <laughs> totally yep. fair if you have a super Catholic family, yep. you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> we don't know anything about those people. You've only seen that in a book. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I think they'll saint you if you, uh, they'll canonize you if you, uh, right. if, if you mispronounce it. Short like, road to the yeah. next sacrament. kept yourself pure yeah. of, of <laughs> correct pronunciation. Of all yeah. of the. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh Yeah. 
they're very revealing those things adrian do you have one well i'm not an only child so, so you and, don't count I'm, not, not, <laughs> I'm a non-native speaker so i mispronounce pretty much every everything English word that's ever crossed my lips uh, it's, uh... <laughs> but on the other hand of course what you're describing is kind of false friendship right you know the words intimately you understand them but they betray you in their pronunciation oh, great. i yeah. have always been yeah. distrustful of them and i always double check yes. myself and in fact when i do radio appearances or something like that yeah. i often will deliberately avoid words because i'm like in the moment scared that i will say them wrong Same. and then later i'm like no no you know that it's what it was on it was on tv the other day you've heard it you know but right. adrian that has happened to me so many times and don't let it be something like npr right or you know daily show like national television my mind is racing ahead of myself to make sure i'm like oh mm. wait a minute it's epiphany right yeah like well yeah. yeah it's it's definitely obfuscate and i i do it all the time yeah yeah, which is why I'm exhausted usually at the end of one of those things. Yeah, I guess what you were just saying took me to another bummer place, which is remembering mm. that perfectionism is the product of trauma. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, which is something that humbles me on the daily mm -hmm. <laughs> to remember. Right. Because what you just described is a survival response, right? right? Your mind racing ahead to check yeah. you in advance. That's right. Um, and that is a perfect example of yeah. a perfectionistic tick born of trauma. One of my skill sets as a professor I tell people is that I can identify the hyper competent student a mile away mm. and they are my specialty. I attract them and I say to them, come on, let me talk to you. You know, shout out Lauren Garcia. That's too. right. You know, <laughs> shout out to Lauren, my former graduate student who has now graduated. Thank you very much. Praise uh, her and name. My assistant. And she can tell you, I spot them in class and I go, come on, let me get you. Let me gather mm. you. Because it's exactly what it is. It is trying to control the uncontrollable, yeah. trying to predict the unpredictable when you know you don't have enough power to navigate what might be thrown at you, but you'll be held responsible for it. If it goes wrong, you become hyper-competent. Yeah. And the sick thing is that in a false meritocracy like ours, we reward that yeah. when really it is a trauma response. And it's just me telling them all the time, you realize you can fuck that up and it's okay, right? Right. And they go, what? I was like, I promise you, just give it a shot and let's just <laughs> let it go wrong and you'll be okay. I take very seriously my role of doing that for other people because, of course, I wish someone had done it for me. Yeah. Although, of course, generating that kind of reassurance is incredibly important work, but of course, it holds true in a country like this one until it doesn't, right? That's and that's, right. The, that's the other really horrifying thing that, right. of course, you'd want to promise this to your students and be able to say that with 100% confidence, but you can't, right? Yeah. You cannot. That's right. And in fact, I often start there. I cannot and will not lie to you yeah. about how the world is supposed to respond to this because it's likely not to happen. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, it's broken. That reminds me of another thing that you said. I feel like this whole conversation definitely reveals that your Twitter feed is basically my Bible. But um, you <laughs> tweeted something a couple months ago about institutions not loving you back yeah. that I'm going to need to frame on my office wall. Could you could you tell the students at home what you were saying about that? I think it is especially true. I think it's true for all of us, but especially true for people who have made a lot of personal sacrifices to participate in and to win at the meritocratic promise of the U.S., which is you go to school, you get a good job, you do right, and your reward will be not just stability, but upward mobility, right? We will provide these opportunities for you to do it. And because of that, when we get in these institutions and find that they are hostile to us, 
we tend to assume that it is something we have done because this is the place that's supposed to remake you, that's supposed to change your life. And I will always say to people, we said Mm -hmm. change your life. We didn't say change it for the better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We said we'd remake you. We didn't promise into what. (laughs) Uh, And I think it uh, it is incumbent upon those of us that the institution was not made for to remember that it isn't that the institution hates you. It is that it cannot love you. It was never designed for you. Mm -hmm. It cannot love you. And when we are there, we are usually there as an exception to the rule. And we cannot so closely identify ourselves with that institution. To do it would be to like psychologically cleave yourself into multiple pieces. You're going to have to learn to hate a part of yourself to love that institution and to pursue it wanting to love you back. And it just can't. Mm. And I think it's important. And it's not that it won't, because won't suggest that something's wrong with either of you. No, it's doing exactly what it is supposed to do. And you're doing what you're supposed to do. It just can't love you. Right. And we want it to so badly because we all want to belong. That's a human desire. And because the veneer of the institution is that this is a place where you should belong, but it can't love you. We've got to get that elsewhere. Going almost back to our original discussion and something Adrian said, I think that's why protests feel so good to us. Right. Right. When your institutions can't love you and, and, and you know that on a level, even if you haven't really consciously come to that understanding, that's why you want to show up at a place of potential Moving from one liminal space to another liminal space might seem counterintuitive, but I think we know on our gut level that the liminal space of protest at least has the potential of allowing us, of accepting us. And we know our institutions don't even have that potential. Right. And at least the question of being loved or loving is dynamic. A protest may not be your particular cup of tea, but you can remake it. One of the problems with the university is just it is what it is. It's a it's, right. it is a immense, yeah. powerful, high wattage That's financial right. juggernaut. Even if it had the inclination to change, it is heavily incentivized mm-hmm. against doing so. Yeah. And a protest is, as you were saying earlier, it's incredibly volatile. It can go any which way. Even if it doesn't love you right now, it might in five minutes. It might. That's right. It might remake itself into something yeah. that reflects you. That's right. The pregnant pause and potential of protest is something that you're never going to get at an institution, certainly not at an academic institution. I tell people the idea of a progressive institution is just nonsense. An institution by design is conservative. It's meant to ward off social instability and change. And so the most we can ever do is sort of prod at it. But for real radical opportunity and potential, it's going to have to happen outside an institution. Yeah. I think that's why so many of our students struggle. They're trying to keep a foot in both of those worlds. Right. And it's so difficult. Well, and what you were saying also highlighted a tragedy that's so central to some of those students' experiences, which is the student that mistakes the institution that cannot love them for an institution that will not love them and continues trying to sacrifice that part of themselves as ties to the institution. Yes. And how precious that part of themselves that they're sacrificing is, you know, whatever blackness or queerness or whatever that is. (laughs) Oh, the black queer babies break my heart. I get them every semester. Yes, they break my heart. Because I think, so here's the thing, I think Blackness does at least come with a sort of home community that Mm -hmm, will receive you. mm -hmm. Depending on where you still Mm -hmm. are in this country, 
there isn't such a place if you are queer. Yes. And I think it's so important for us to remember yes. that, yes. that right. there is a casting out that happens with queer people that is still not universal for other groups of people, not even black folk writ large. And so I think our queer students and babies suffer the most. So much of their group identity is about being cast out. And then institutions do this thing where they recruit them on this false belief that finally here will be the place you will belong. We've got we've got the queer student union and the queer sorority and fraternities, and we've got the this and the that. Right. Only to find that the core of the institution will still be unavailable to them. They struggle so so much. Or that, as you were saying, that you have to give up a certain part of yourself. That's right. Because I think there yeah. is. There is a part of the institution that is, I think, mm-hmm. accepting of certain kind of queerness, but it has to be a certain kind of queerness, right? I'll yeah. say this as a yeah. as a queer person myself that like yeah. you're very aware, right? That there are these moments of decision. Mm-hmm. Like you can be the kind of person that they want you to be, and things will be great. That's right. And, yeah, or we'll at least, love at, you at least until the next time, right? So like today yeah. I'm fine. Today I'm fine. Tomorrow is a different story, but today I'll be fine. Yeah. In each case, you understand like oh, but there's a whole range of behaviors, mm-hmm. identities, and just ways of feeling that I'm being asked to foreclose on right now. That's right. And if I refuse to do that, it turns out there's no place for that at the institution. That's right. It's a it's always a marginal acceptance, and I think the perverse part of it is that there is such a visible effort of uh, branding is the better word, maybe a branding of queerness that does preclude radical queerness right. and absolutely precludes that, you know, in lots of ways I think is very class. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you want to and, do and this middle right? class, that's right. If you want to do this white middle class, like, oh, absolutely. But now if you, if you want to do that and then be outside of a binary and you want to talk about Black Lives Matter and you want to talk about being a Chicana and then you want to, like, that's when it gets, like, really, yeah, the trade-offs of the other parts of not just identity but ways of being. I think that pressure is so immense for queer students. Well, I think we're talking about queerness and I think we're also talking very directly about intersectionality, you know, and sort of how much latitude any institution or institutional community is going to give people to be multiple, (laughs) you know, (laughs) institutions are not famous for tolerating multiplicity. That's right. You got to check a box. Mm -hmm. We'll give you a box. We'll we'll give you a box called radical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just check Mm -hmm. the box. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. It is, again, the disciplining effects of an institution are are so immense because it needs to have a sort of bureaucratic control. And the minute you buy into one piece of it, you've bought into all of it. You can't get it partially. You got to do the whole thing is what I think we end up learning. We think we can kind of come in and just take pieces of it. But each piece, kind of like Adrian says, you know that, oh, that's an exchange. Right. I've given up this part for this part. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think that we have taken up too much of your liminal time in this transitional moment that is traumatizing your only child in the cubby hole. I feel for you. I feel for you, Tressie. Yes. Oh, if I don't get my inner child back into my cubby hole, let me tell you, I'm oh a my grown goodness. woman. Oh, I thought I had it here, but I do have it beside me. Of course, it's right here beside me. This is my blanket. That's so I at least beautiful. <laughs> Good, good that, self care. That is really, really good. Yeah. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's really important. I mean, in these 
unstable times, any stabilizing force we can facilitate That's right. for it's ourselves. It's the little things. Mm. Yeah, I've yeah. got a blanket and a coffee mug. It's always mm-hmm. the last thing I pack and the first thing I take out. And so as long as I've got those two things, I've got little touchstones mm. that say, okay, we're all right. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman and a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crosley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is R. Lanier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product services and entities. Blue Apron, Hims, Casper Mattresses, the Trump administration, and that stupid wine club started by two MIT grads. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and shoot us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there.